Hello, dearest inner circle of patrons. It's lovely to have you back. We are back with another reading club, and we are discussing Gaspar Miklos Tamas's uh, essay, Telling the Truth About Class. And I'm going to pass over to George, uh, who's running this one. Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, an essay by the Hungarian Marxist D.M. Tamás um, from the Socialist Register in 2006. Um, the issue was titled Telling the Truth About uh, telling just telling the truth and this essay is telling the truth about uh, about class so yeah just a bit of background about tamash so he was a liberal dissident of the um uh, and a friend of of, of orban's there's a picture of orban uh, shielding him from some some kind of riot cops in in the 70s um and he later after reading all the hayek and all, all that sort of thing became became a marxist so good good for him but became um, a marxist and- again i think because he, he he i think he had been a marxist and then kind of uh, went to liberalism and came back if i'm not mistaken is that right well maybe yeah maybe um i stand corrected so um uh, yeah so he um i think it's interesting to put this yeah it's 15 years old now but put it in the context of some new i guess people are are people talking about class more now we've we have had a some some analyses of, of various aspects of of class in the political context so you can think of the of various books by people like Catherine Liu, Paul Embry, Michael Lind, uh, Christoph Gui, uh, Joel Kotkin, essays by Malcolm Cheyune and, and various other people, um, some of which we have talked about on this on this podcast. And I think it's important to, if anybody who hasn't read it, who's considering reading it, that this is quite a long way from the academic sociology approach to class, which is that kind of desiccated Weberian stratification discourse, um, which is very akin to that kind of marketing, put somebody in the category A, B, C, D, E, or whatever. Um, But yeah, I think probably this kind of idea of telling the truth about class, it's, it's, it's kind of timely because at the moment we don't, you know, you maybe see see the left not particularly talking uh, or wanting to talk about class. So yeah, so just I won't won't go into the argument of the piece too much, but just to to kind of the the headline and I think something we're going to talk about quite a lot is that uh, Tamash divides contemporary socialism into two basically two streams, which he terms as Marxism and Rousseauianism, and sees E. P. Thompson as the pinnacle of uh, the latter that thought it was the former. So in Thompson, he sees or he, he, he reads Thompson as saying that there's a massive um, value in, in working class culture um, and that the this um, the goal of, of, of the proletariat is, is it's 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 survival, essentially. So it's also worth saying that one of the things that he talks about, and we'll probably get into this as well, is the um, debate between E.P. Thompson and uh, Perry Anderson in, in the British context in the 70s. Um, and argues that this should be the main uh, actually there's a david edgerton piece in the new in new statesman at the moment which is really good on this some of the context and saying that this should be the main british intellectual debate not um snow versus Liebes. you might know who who Liebes is but snow is a forgotten figure anyhow the i think a bit of context before we before we get into this is the um this perhaps this idea that you can see western marxism so this this kind of trend of um or this school of thought of 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 marxism kind of 1920s 1930s onwards um increasingly displacing this idea of class with one of the people and this 
perhaps the, the, the end point of this is Ernesto Leclerc's work. Anyway, we're, this is supposed to be a discussion, not a uh, monologue. So what did you guys make of, um, of this, this piece? Do you think it did tell the truth or, or did it not? Well, maybe an, an impossible truth, but yeah, we'll, we'll maybe get on to why, why impossible later on, but, uh, or at least very, very difficult. But uh, I think at least the division of, of the left or, you know, of socialism and not just contemporary as, as George said in the intro, but, you know, throughout modernity uh, of having, and even pre-modernity arguably of having a Rousseauian trend and then uh, a, a Marxian trend um, or not trend, but, but uh, I guess a tendency or, or, you know, uh, and, and which is fascinating, I think, and especially the idea that many Marxists have actually been Rousseauians and have been, um, you know, attacking what might actually be, at least intellectually, the lower hanging fruit of the Ancien Regime um, and continuing to, to try to sweep away the feudal remnants rather than necessarily taking on uh, bourgeois society and, and capitalism itself. I think that's right. I think the division between Rousseauianism as a um, collectivist ethos, kind of plebeian, demotic, egalitarian, um, counterposed to hierarchies and to elites of various kinds, and contrasting that with the f with the more far more kind of um, specific. Uh, claims of Marxism in seeking to transcend capital. And he makes, I mean, I think, you know, there are different ways, I suppose, to frame this um, tension. And I think um, he, you know, he does it very well and um, importantly. And the big, I mean, the big difference, I suppose, being that one of these, one of this, uh, one of these strands is about um, elevating the people or elevating the subaltern or um, the put upon, the dispossessed and so on, and strengthening their position in society and therefore preserving them, um, enhancing their status, enhancing their well-being at the expense of those who've oppressed them. In contrast to Marxism, which seeks to abolish class as such, and specifically, and so in the case of working class politics, Rousseauians have sought to elevate um, and to strengthen the working class, whereas Marxism has sought and failed to abolish abolish the working class, abolish the proletariat, and that's the tension. Uh, at times, I mean, I think it's a tad, you know, perhaps it's a tad uh, forced, and perhaps that, you know, it's partly uh, the speaks to the nature of presenting this kind of argument. Um, but I think there are also political implications of the way in which he forces the contrast between these two trends. Yeah, I think there are some interesting um, potential contradictions within at least what he describes as Rousseauianism, and maybe we can go on to talk about that. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I mean to suggest not real contradictions in, in their practice, but in using the label Rousseauian, because uh, just to take one example off the top of my head, that Rousseauians look back to a you know pre-modern or even pre-civilizational past before the corruption of civilization, while at the same time their political practice being effectively modernizing, helping bourgeoisies modernize. And that seems to be contradictory. So which one is it, right? Um, are they modernizing or are they um, romantics effectively? And, and so, you know, I, maybe the Rousseauian is, is, doesn't work as a term, or maybe it's, try, it's too all-encompassing. 
But I think on balance, I think it, it works to capture uh, the sort of equality left, the egalitarian strand of leftism, uh, and one which seeks to, as uh, I think we've already said, you know, lift up the people or remoralize the people instead of seeking to abolish the working class as a class. So, yeah, I think that's all all really important. And so the way that Tamash summarizes it is as uh, two different approaches to class here. So you have the demonic versus the angelic. So this idea essentially that the Rousseauian approach has an uh, has an angelic view of, of the working class. The So this is Rousseau, Polanyi, E.P. Thompson, all of these sorts of theorists. The idea of class here is rooted in essentially the, the excellence of, of the working class, whereas the Marxist idea is well, in fact, the working class really have nothing to lose, but their change, the alienation of that class means that it cannot, uh, or the, the structural situation of that class means that it cannot free itself without thereby freeing the whole um, of society. And he does say that this is, you know, the great discovery of Rousseau um, is this idea of the people, this this kind of conception that humanity is inherently good. Um, and you can sort of see a contemporary application of this in in education so this idea that people are inherently good they inherently kind of know what they're doing so you don't really need to tell them um what to do you just kind of let them let them draw out the ideas and and, and the knowledge which is already inside uh, themselves but anyway i'm sure we can get more onto some of the uh, yeah the contradictions as it were with rousseauian um socialism but alex well and there's one other distinction as well which is that uh, Marxism obviously is historicist. I mean, that's the it's kind of perhaps defining characteristic, at least in contrast to to Rousseauianism and to other forms of kind of left and social socialist thought. And so there is no kind of moral sense that capitalism is bad. You know, capitalism is contradictory. It's a it's a it's a stage in human history, and it's something which is you know a necessary alienation that has to happen, which in some which in some ways represents progress as well as destruction at the same time. Um, and so it's not imbued with a moral understanding of um, of society or of the agents of of that society. And Rousseauianism is, I guess, a moral one. Um, it has a kind of moral understanding in which people are good and are corrupted by civilization or by capitalism or, you know, by uh, the ruling class or whatever it might be. What's interesting is that like Rousseauianism does, it's not that it doesn't have any historical view because it, I guess it does. It does. It suggests, but it's a much more limited one and a much more moralized one than the Marxian understanding of history, which is that, you know, before you had good and then you have like bad capitalism, and it's interesting because one of the one of the examples that he gives to 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 kind of give fundament to this idea of Rousseauianism is Polanyi's idea that all societies prior to capitalism, ones based purely on market exchange, were were natural societies, and that capitalism then therefore is somehow an unnatural corruption uh, of of what is otherwise a kind of rooted good natural society. Uh, and therefore, Rousseauianism would presumably look to go back to it, which again comes back to the contradiction that I mentioned earlier. Does it want? Is it romantic, wanting to go back to a pre-capitalist past, or is it seeking merely to get rid of the kind of feudal remnants? So, I think in in this essay, kind of what comes out of this this distinction um, is a number of a number of kind of assertions and, and claims about you know about Marxism and about Rousseauianism. Uh, and about Marx too. So, yeah, I mean, one of one of the things that I wanted to ask the two of you is whether you thought Tamash was right that Marx does not, quote unquote, oppose capitalism ideologically. 
because this of course is is the standard presentation um of marx that he's you know he's an anti-capitalist he, he opposes capitalism ideologically no and i mean it's a point you know when we've talked about these questions that we've addressed um you know with in previous episodes but no i mean he's quite the op i mean you know but also i mean to be the truth be told it's already something of a cliche on the left to note marx's praise for capitalism um it's i think already um Terry Eagleton says, you know, that Marx kind of lavishes praise on capitalism to a greater extent than you'd see in either The Economist or The Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, I think that point is familiar to people who have encountered these debates already. The idea that Marx is a simple kind of antagonist of capitalism or opponent of capitalism doesn't hold water. Well, I would, yeah, I mean, I would say that's not, it's not that he praises it or he opposes it it's just that he as alex was saying it's it's history like it's evil for rousseau it has a moral dimension but for marx it has a you know it's historical and so it's not the same as being like i'd give it kind of 10 out of 10 for the good bits and minus 10 out of 10 for the bad bits it's like you know this is this is the way that human human species progresses given the uh, material constraints that, that face us and the, the role of technology but anyway Anyway, to move on to a, a less kind of um, um, staged question, um, what is the main aim of Rousseauian socialism then? As Tamash kind of, because um, we talked around this a little bit, as Tamash kind of um, portrays it, just to give, I guess, particularly listeners who haven't read this or haven't finished reading it, like some, uh, some, some more kind of, uh, I was going to say fruit, but that's not the right, some more meat on the bones of this idea of Rousseauian socialism. But you can you can do it in terms of fruit if you want. Um, no, we're only meat here. Uh, to meat only diet. It's a Jordan Peterson hour uh, here on Bunga Cast. No. Um, so the, what do they aim at? I think it's interesting because the, again, it kind of seems to point in different directions. As I suggested, there might be at least if you're being really true to Rousseau, maybe more of a kind of romantic element to it. Um, but as the as the essay goes along it becomes clear that what Tamash is referring to is specifically uh, egalitarianism, right? And that's the, the fundamental aspect of, uh, of Rousseauianism in contrast to Marxist desire for emancipation. And that, that egalitarianism then gets parlayed into several other things, statism, because of course you need the state to, as an authority to impose equality, to redistribute and so on, uh, and also culture. And culture is important here because Rousseauianism wants to uplift the working class. It doesn't want to abolish it as a class. And therefore, it kind of appeals perhaps even romantically to certain ideas of what the class was or wants to preserve it as it is. And incidentally, Tamash also notes that uh, Rousseauians always or often kind of had a, or Rousseauian, put it differently, Rousseauian was was popular even in pre-modern moments, let's say pre the French Revolution among peasant populations, because again, it's a, it's a desire to kind of preserve that peasant equality, which is being corrupted by the evil Lord or whatever. And so the overthrow of that Lord is something that actually persists through Rousseauian politics up till the present day, or maybe, you know, uh, maybe that's a question mark, but, but at least until let's say the second world war of getting rid of these old feudal elites in the name of equality. I mean, I, I think um, I think the yeah the main aim here of this Rousseauian form of socialism is is equality. The you know the Rousseauian community, as Tamash describes it, is is frugal, musical, martial, 
hostile to individuation and text. It's it's quite a, um, I think it's also quite a simplified, a cleansed, a purged kind of um, kind of community. Um, so well, and, and and simplification. He says it is explicitly Rousseauians aim at simplification, right? Uh, and that's the difference. Not that Marxists aim at further complication or compl- complexification, <laughs> but uh, but there's definitely an aim at at simplification. Complexification is a good word because it kind of it 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 just it does what it says on the tin. Um, yeah, Phil. Well, only to add to what Alex said is that so many of the um, agrarian revolts of the last two centuries in you know. Um, modernizing kind of an urbanizing countries can be seen as part of this Rousseauian part of this Rousseauian trend um, kind of trying not only trying to um, uh, preserve kind of certain kinds of uh, relations but also to overthrow particular kinds of elites as well so it's um, it's very you know it's lends itself to a certain kind of um, collective politics in countries that are going through the throes of modernization, of industrialization, and you know, it's I mean, I think it's a very good way to describe a certain kind of politics of the last two hundred years. I think, in um, at least in the developed world. Yeah, I mean, he concludes that these kind of Rousseauian struggles, which characteristically egalitarian, anti-aristocratic, kind of. Um, that they're they're still they're still um, justified as late as you know Second World War, seeing this kind of revival, the fascism as a revival of an oppressive past. That these Rousseauian struggles that they have a you know they have a justified place there. But I think one thing I would add to this is that to, in terms of like what's the relationship of this Rousseauian socialism to to class? Well, Tamas's central claim here is that. It's essentially based on a mistake that it 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 looks to abolish caste, but that's but says that it's abolishing class. That that's that's the the abolition of caste is really the central, um, the, the aristocracy, the clergy, all of these things. There that that's the um, the goal. Get you know for the commoners to become the 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 nation, the the you know to to become the people. That's what it's aiming at. It's not aiming at the abolition of class. It's an important point, and I think it's you know uh, visible perhaps only to an East or Central European such as Tamash himself, is uh, because it helps explain something of the legitimacy of the regimes that emerge in um, you know the Stalinist regimes of the Eastern Bloc, is precisely because they achieve some of these modernizing effects. They um, overthrow the stranglehold of the aristocracy in Eastern and Central Europe, and Hungary is a kind of example of this, and they lead to a kind of egalitarian modernization. And so it's difficult to explain um, those regimes without understanding this kind of thrust of um, Rousseauian collectivist politics. So, and he stresses this repeatedly, I think, and it's uh, a point, you know, it's a well-made point about understanding why these, um, why the kind of the people's republics and people's democracies of that era enjoyed legitimacy despite, you know, um, uh, being, uh, despite their authoritarianism, the lack of multi-party democracy and civil liberty and so on, they nonetheless enjoyed legitimacy because they were part of uh, an egalitarian revolt and overturning the attempt to um, entrench the old regime through fascism. Yeah, and actually, yeah. I mean, as an aside, it might also be a reason why a lot of people tolerate uh, capitalist barbarisms or things that we see as that 
because the memory of uh, a, a sort of an agrarian or sort of pre-capitalist past or some sort of quasi-feudal elements uh, remain somewhat fresh in the memory. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's it's useful to kind of go through that 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 kind of characterization of what Rousseauian socialism is um because then you know there are obviously loads of implications that he draws out of this and one of them i think he's you know it's it's well uh, what, what do you guys think but um he says that a lot of people who basically consider themselves to be marxists are in fact rousseauians um with it as i already mentioned ep thompson um is the most important case here yeah i mean do you think this this think is this a really yeah this is a really interesting question i think because he's right certainly about um ep thompson and his confederates as he calls them um who romanticize the kind of organic life uh, you know famously in his book the making of the english working class he f he romanticizes that um kind of plebeian uh, democratic culture that emerges uh, through the process of industrialization among English workers, the self-help, the mutual aid societies, um, the friendly societies, uh, the education that was conducted independently of the university and the church, um, the non-conformist religion and all of this. And so, and it's this tremendously kind of rousing um, overview of this whole vanished world, this you know incredibly kind of intricate and complex and dense, um, almost parallel society within um, within the um, the Georgian and later Victorian uh, society of Britain of the day, um, and so you know I think that is Rousseauian at least in Tamash's terms is describing this um, this uh, plebeian kind of uh, democratic egalitarian society of the downtrodden and the oppressed. But I'm not sure that Marxists, those who consider themselves Marxists are in fact Rousseauians today. I think many of those, I mean, what's striking, and this is where I think, you know, this is why I was so intrigued to read the Tamash, that so many of those who consider themselves Marxists today, I, you know, we're long past the era of E.P. Thompson and the rest, aren't Rousseauians at all. And they're defined, in fact, by their anti-Rousseauian character, their hatred of um, their seizure upon the most, you know, kind of um, marginal um, ideas and theories and esoteric ways of distinguishing themselves from the mass of the population um, and their hostility to anything that is vaguely democratic or demotic or plebeian. And that is um, that is striking. And so Rousseauianism to the moment, and I think this is just as much as Tamash's understanding of um, the Rousseauian character of Stalinism in Eastern Europe is only visible from you know the vantage point of being Hungarian. I think the anti-Rousseauian character of today's left is only is most visible from the vantage point of Brexit Britain, because that Rousseauian left has been appropriated, or is in the course of being appropriated by the Tories at the moment. Um, and the left and the Marxists are left kind of, uh, those who call themselves Marxists are characterized by their hatred of it. And that doesn't, despite the fact that Tamash says, Mar you know, Marxism is, isn't Rousseauian, it doesn't, the, that doesn't seem to me to be an, the fact where the Marxists are at the moment doesn't seem to me to be an improvement on that in the contemporary context. Well, I, I, the only thing I, I think that's true insofar as Rousseauianism is that E.P. Thompson strand, right? But if Rousseauianism is what, Tamash develops it as, as a sort of egalitarian statism, then I think it it still is, right? I think it, I think many Marxists still are. And it, let's, to leave aside the question of the contemporary moment, because of course, Tamash wrote this 
15 years ago anyway. So it's, oh, it was published 15 years ago. I think it was written before that. Cause it was, this is a condensed version of a, it was, it was probably written was written before it was published. But I mean, I mean a, a little while before rather than, uh, you know, your stupid glib comeback. Um, the, the, the point, cause I, I, I think, and I should have looked this up beforehand, but I think it was written in the late nineties. It was written 98, 99 or initially published then. But so you know what the left is today is not exactly the same as what it was in the in the late 90s anyway the point the the, the more uh, kind of salient point is that if we're talking about the left or you know marxists over the 20th century in uh, western europe and north america let's say i think a lot of those marxists were rousseauians because at the point that you know i think we would all agree with that a lot of the people who say they were marxists post war were in many cases social democrats Right, and then by being social democrats, they are Rousseauians by by definition. If there are only two possibilities, Rousseauian and Marxism, they you know, or in Rousseauianism standing in for egalitarian statism, then they are uh, then then most Marxists have been uh, or many Marxists have been Rousseauians. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, there's a strong you know part of the social democracy of the 20th century. There's a strong Fabian character to it. Not I mean you know in Britain, but elsewhere as well, in the sense of a snooty elitist, uh, technocratic caste, um, you know, a superior caste. Of uh, but I don't think, but I don't think, but that's what that's I don't the thing. think that fits with the Rousseauian thing. So the Rousseauian but, but, thing is explicitly kind of pro-plebeian, right? But, that's, but they so, are, but I think, aren't they, they are, they're elitist and snooty, but they're kind of like, let's keep the working, we want the working class, we want the working class to have council houses, right? Perfect. Keep them, yeah, keep not, the working class as they the, are, but give, them, not, give them a little bit no, to no, subsist on yeah, and have a little yeah, bit no, more look, equality. It's about improving, it's a technocratic improvement of national life and efficiency and modernization, but it is not the same as E.P. Thompson's um, kind of tremendous, uh, you know, veneration. No, I, I, I agree. And I'm, and I'm, I'm saying it doesn't have to be. That's my point. That I don't think Rousseauianism so, has to apply to. The, it doesn't have to be E.P. Thompson singing the praises of the whole world of working class culture. It, it's just merely. I think it does. A to question be, of preserving be, the working no, I think, class. No, I think the point. The point is that social democracy is a larger phenomenon than Rousseauian socialism in the 20th century, and that I think that Rousseauian. You know the collectivist ethos of um, the um, of Rousseauianism in its kind of original form is, I think, that has to be part of you know if it's to be a consistent characterization of a certain kind of socialist politics. I think there, you know, then um, uh, I, it has to be cast in those terms. Just one final point on this, just quickly, is that I I take your point, and if we, I would be in favor maybe of a more limited usage of Rousseauianism as you're suggesting, but I don't think that's Thomas's uses usage. Excuse me. As you, as you go along in the essay, he's, he doesn't make any further real reference to that E.P. Thompson style uh, glorification or moralization of working class life. And instead, Rousseauianism comes to mean uh, egalitarianism, statism, and an emphasis on culture. And so, you know, Thomas's so, own usage broadens yeah. it out. No, I think I think there is a there is a point here about how things have have changed, and I can editorialize as as the chair and, and say what <clears throat> what I think and present that as as what we all think and what the correct answer is. And it, I mean, it's clearly it's clearly the case that in twenty twenty one there is a in addition to Rousseauianism and Marxism, you have a hyper liberalism, and a lot of people I think who consider themselves Marxists are essentially. Um, are essentially liberals of a, of a certain certain sort. And that's perhaps not too surprising that in those 15 years, 
um, socialism has decayed in 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 that way. But I think it's a it's a kind of it's a good question. <laughs> like people who consider themselves Marxist aren't. What what are they in fact? And tracing what Rousseauism would look like in twenty twenty one to kind of that is an interesting question in and of itself. Um, but yeah, so just to, to I guess to move through some of the the kind of the, some more of the political consequences here. Um, so one thing which he says is that essentially there's this process whereby modern socialists continually seem to mistake the abolition of caste for the abolition of class. So this kind of laps into that Rousseauian like model. Um, why? Like why? Why does this seem to to happen? Um, it's not so. It's I mean it's straightforward. I mean I think it's straightforward to understand what he's saying. It's less straightforward if, if you're in the middle of these kind of political and social struggles. And he, what he's saying is simply that the, you know, the political successes of breaking down various kind of inegalitarian forms of social and political life obviously is experienced as political progress and momentum and success and victory over entrenched interests, over um, powerful elites, over inequality. And so in unsurprisingly, the, you know, those kinds of um, forward advances are experienced as if they're transforming the fundamental character of society. Um, but in fact, they may not be, you know, may not actually be touching um, the wage labor relationship, which in the Marxist schema, at least is the most important one. Um, I mean, I have to say, I think this is a bit where he pulls apart the two strands a bit too far. Because I think depending on particular contexts, I think it is possible that certain kinds of political struggles that are cast against um, established interests and, you know, kind of um, inegalitarian politics of various kinds, hierarchical politics of various kinds, can be, um, you know, genuine kind of political successes that are meaningful in class terms and not just in caste terms. The fact that they've been failed, that they were failed to meaningfully translate into enduring kind of um, victories for Marxist politics, that's a separate question. But it doesn't seem to me that they're destined to fail um, or that these kinds of political struggles against inequality are destined to fail or fall short. Well, they're not, I don't think that he's claiming that they'll fail or fall short, but just that it, to a certain extent, there's a, a, a false consciousness for, to, to, to use a, a, a risky sort of phrase, but there's a sort of false consciousness at work in that they think that they're doing Marxist politics, but they're actually doing Rousseauian politics, that they're demolishing caste. So, you know, if you're, uh, you know, you might be calling for the abolition of the House of Lords, or you might be taking on crony capitalism and trying to get rid of, uh, you know, clientelistic and patrimonial uh, sort of practices um, or various forms of unfree labor, for example, um, like. But that's you know, what I mean. I think abolishing the House of Lords would be right a kind of a democratic success that could yeah, be unambiguously welcomed. Yeah, I don't think he I don't he's not denying that. That's why I'm saying they're not fail. It's not a failure to abolish the House of Lords. It's just that it's not. Marxist politics. It's not. No, 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 but this is what I'm saying. It can, it, depending on the context, I think it could be Marxist politics, right? And obviously, as long as the, as long as a kind of, there was, uh, if it was understood that this wasn't equivalent to establishing socialism, I think that's the difference between um, the Labour Party and, you know, kind of Marxist politics. It doesn't seem to me that the, um, you know, that abolishing the House of Lords would just be a kind of a mistake or an error. And I think the, what I'm saying is, I suppose it's more complicated than I think he allows for. 
it's in practice, it'll be much more ambiguous um, than it would appear from the outside or in historical retrospect. So I yeah, mean, I think, you, that's, I think that's fair. Do you, do you think that he is then guilty of of making Marxist politics or the true proletarian pol proletarian politics too narrow? That it is that he identifies that being as ipso facto revolutionary, and not just revolutionary, but one leading to the self abolition of the working class. Well, as a it's class, telling and that, that, and that he, anything else is is like not not uh, you know not proper. It's Marxist telling policy. that the only that the only kind of um, the only genuine Marxist political science, as he calls it, or politics that he's willing to countenance, is that of the Council Communists um, in the early part of the twentieth century. And you know that is um, kind of uh, you know that is a definite kind of record of failure. And so he he is unwilling to deal with um, Leninist politics in the course of the 20th century. And that seems to me to be the blind, I mean, you know, predictably, perhaps, I suppose, but that seems to me to be the blind spot. Yeah, well, his, uh, yeah. And not by chance, he also cites some left communists and people like Robert Kurtz and stuff in the in the footnotes. Yeah, um, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah. On similar yeah, I mean, he, he does. He does. All, he does say, I mean, it, I think I think that is a good point that the the way he sets it up, there is an, is an extremely high bar for what makes Marxian socialism. And he does say Marxian socialism has never been attempted politically, especially not with, with Marxists. So, I mean, to say that it, it's basically abolition of um, wage labor yeah. or nothing, that's, well, that's to quite rule a... Out, but also just to rule out the Russian revolution kind of by fiat. I mean, you know, a failed revolution, but I think a genuine attempt to to be a proletarian, a self-conscious proletarian politics and just to kind of um, assume that it was nothing but a kind of an attempt to overthrow the the Ancien Regime. That seems, you know, that seems to me. Yeah, well, I don't think he, I don't think he says that, but but he, I think he makes a point in in where he identifies yeah, the four reasons. Sorry, sorry, just quickly, he he identifies the four reasons for why there's this slippage or retreat from socialism to egalitarianism. One of the reasons is that they were always they need that that most uh, working class socialist politics ended up trying to do bourgeois and proletarian revolution at the same time. And I guess he would see, I mean, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, he would see the Russian revolution as an attempt to do proletarian and bourgeois revolution at the same time, but only accomplishes one of them. Kind of buy one, get one free attempt. I mean, not, yeah, really, I mean, not really buy one, get one free. I don't think that's a right analogy. It's not no, one extra. It's that you're limit. You're trying to sweep away the ancien regime at the same time as jumping forward to socialism. And in fact, what they exactly. do exactly. And and he does he does say this. This is one of the, the you know the, the contextual factors that successful proletarian revolutions have not triumphed against capitalism, but these quasi feudal kind of old creaking regimes. I mean, but yeah. I mean, I think it's it's it is it is worth sort of bearing in mind some of these um, some of these flaws in the um or not flaws but some of the limitations in in this um in this kind of distinction that he, that he draws so one thing that he points to um is this debate between uh, perry anderson and uh, tom nan on the one side and ep thompson on the other and um, we could do an episode on 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 this or, or some of the um, outputs of this, but it's an interesting kind of uh, intellectual debate in in uh, English Marxism or no British Marxism because Tom Nairns I think Scottish in fact. So and he refers the, to him as English in the in the essay. I noted that I was like, oh, does he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. 
that's yeah, that's probably something you shouldn't do to a, to a Scottish person unless you're deliberately trying to, to irritate them. Um, so, yeah, so basically Perry Anderson's um, kind of picture of um, British, so there's an essay component of the national culture, I think it's called, um, which is in the New Left Review. And it's a really fantastic piece where he sort of says, like, here's here's the here's the, the, the intellectual culture of, um, of Britain and here's why, because there was a failed bourgeois revolution or an incomplete one, you had the fusion of the, arist- the land-owning aristocracy and the, the bourgeoisie, so you'd never really got a proper functioning bourgeoisie, so you got no um, domestic Marxism, no kind of domestic sociology and a really stunted intellectual um, culture and a supine working class, I think is the phrase he uses. And E.P. Thompson's not particularly keen on this and, and kind of comes back. And um, there's a there's a, another element of this, which um, David Edgerton brings out, which is that he, he, he argues quite forcefully, Perry Anderson's ideas are kind of rooted, uh, are really important for this idea of um, seeing Britain as having declined over the course of the 20th century. So um, there's quite, a, you know, it's quite a bit of background there. But what does Tamash kind of draw out of this debate? What bits does he highlight, and why does he think it's it's worth worth talking about? Well, so he takes the side essentially of um, he takes the side of Anderson as against Thompson, who embodies the Rousseauian vision, as he puts it, and therefore mischaracterizes the. Um, you know, the stakes and the actual, you know, the actual nature of what was achieved um, by uh, labor movements, by working class political movements in in British history over the last um, 200 years or so. Uh, It's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting debate in all sorts of ways, given um, how much has happened since then. Um, But essentially, I mean, he sets up the debate in order to make the case against Rousseauian socialism in favor of Anderson's account of a more um, abstract um, vision of capitalism that isn't so rooted in any specific national culture and also to account um, for the failures of uh, for the development of British laborism, as Anderson puts it, and also by extension, the failure of um, revolutionary politics, um, revolutionary working class politics in the UK. Yeah, no, well, 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 put. I think it's a, it is, it is something that we should, we should return to because it should be kind of dusted down. Again, I'm going to contradict myself. It's not some dusty. It's not some debate in dusty tomes. But you get the tomes down and, and dust them off, and and there's some some really important claims about, I guess, you know, what is what is capitalism and what is a national culture and how do these things um, interact. No, and, so, and 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 the question of modernization and whether modernization is over, whether how to understand, and indeed, it's something which she brings up as well, Ellen Meeksins Woods kind of contrasting account of that. So anyway, there's a whole thing there and I'm not familiar enough with it. So I have, I don't have anything to contribute here, but maybe it is something to, to return to. Thanks. You just contributed that you think we should, we should return to or, or visit it. So I will, I will, I will take that one. Um, so yeah, I think one of the the claims that I would just wanted to, which I, yeah, so it's difficult being the person asking the questions because you, you want to say what you think. Aye, it's difficult, isn't some... it? Is it? It's not easy, is it? <sighs> no, it's not. You have to be you have to be very uh, very balanced. So I'll just ask the question. Uh, why you does have to be balanced? Think... It's what you have to be balanced. Because otherwise you're undermining your own questions. You're saying like, 
<laughs> why have I phrased this as a question when I just want to make a statement? But um, yeah, so why make, Tamash... so make a statement? So make the statement and then we can debate it. Okay. Tamash thinks that the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggles, that he thinks that that claim is false. He thinks it's wrong. Um, I disagree with him. Do you agree with him? I do agree with no, him. No, he's wrong. Um, though I think important, you know, to try and explain why at least, because he makes, I mean, he, he makes the point that class is really only a modern phenomenon. It can only exist when you have the vaporization of old um, pre-modern caste uh, systems and therefore get the, um, and, you know, have kind of individuals that are torn out of uh, corporate social orders. And it's only then that you can actually get what would count as an economic class. And I think that's right. But on the flip side of that is, I, th I mean, class grows out of uh, earlier kind of phenomena. So I think, you know, we can understand that the car, what were caste systems of the past were also um, early forms of the development of what achieves its kind of most clear expression in capitalism itself. So I don't think it's an error on the part of, um, it's not a conceptual or theoretical error on the part of Marx and Engels to say that um, even though they knew very well that um, class didn't, you know, economic classes didn't take the form that they take in capitalism, which is to say, um, you know, very clearly expressed in economic differences, but were stratified in all sorts of, um, uh, you know, in all sorts of kind of uh, inscribed social ways in previous societies. Um, but nonetheless, they would still, in terms of the fact that they relate to the means of production in very specific ways, that they would still count as classes. So I don't think uh, I don't think it's inconsistent. I think he's um, overstating he's overstating the case there. Well, I, I mean, I always understood that that phrase from the manifesto to be a bit controversial or at least tricky because it seems to be it's a sort of trans historical statement which runs against the sort of historical method of Marx and Engels. So, I, I, I think, but I think um, Tamash makes a good point because I think what Phil's, I don't disagree with what Phil said. I think the, the intent of that sentence there is to say that, you know, the history, uh, the, that all human history is a fight over resources and specifically over the social product and social surplus. And whoever controls that will have power. And I think that in that regard, yeah, you, you, you can go with that. But I think Tamash is what he writes is useful in drawing our attention precisely to the modern nature of class and the distinction between caste, caste and class, which are too often confused. Yeah, no, I think even though I just disagree with it, or I think that the way that he, he puts it is, is overstated. And I mean, I've always interpreted that as essentially like it, it def defines what history and society mean, or, or like that, that idea that, you know, this is this is what gives societies, like makes a society a society. Is it if it has class struggle and it's what gives it history, that kind of motor force. But like, I think it's still incredibly interesting when he, he, you know, he he does make the the point which, I'm you know, I I I must have thought of this or no, not thought of this. I must have read this before. But this idea that did the. the one of the most important ways in which class is historically specific to capitalism or the way it, it works is that it's open, like a class position is open to all legally and more or less socially. And so because it's so contingent, 
this is part of the way that unleashes all of these kind of forces of individual freedom in this Mephistophelian way. Um, and it's like, yeah, this, you know, the forms of caste and constraint that pre previous societies had, like once you do, once you liberate, once you take away those fetters, that's what gives the enormous productive power of, of capitalism and all of its, you know, various um, contradictions. But I, st I mean, I, I would still say like previous societies had, classes the, the the modes of exploitation were not as naked and direct and and um so on as they are under this society but um yeah it's a good no the point is they are naked and direct and the previous ones they're indirect in this one yeah i mm, yes no, no i that, don't think so no that is that so. is actually true yeah, because George. because your lord because comes and takes what is, you produce yes, not it's yeah. not the market which comes and and you know fairly fairly takes takes away what you produce because you're paid exactly what your your labor is worth you're not cheated out of uh you know you're not cheated out of your out of your wages you're paid fairly under capitalism yeah exactly so the exploitation is more naked and no and no it's more hidden no, that's, it's, no not. it's more hidden that's <laughs> the point no i i maybe we should do a reading club on the communist manifesto because no hang <laughs> on hang on hey, this is like 101 one stuff here wrong. hang on but pre-capitalist pre formations feudal life is direct domination right and and capitalism is it is like um characterized specifically by this indirect domination that you don't have the lord stamping his boot on you but it's the market which is all fair and equal and so therefore it's not naked it's you can't see it and that's what makes it difficult to challenge capitalism in fact that's part of the argument uh the central it's argument the whole, that Tamish is making the whole here. argument of Tamish's yeah, argument that like Tamish's that they've own. always that all marxists have been able to do is challenge these pre-feudal pre remnants challenge direct domination but they've been unable to really overturn the market they'd have been able to overcome this indirect domination because it's not naked and clear so it's very hard to get people to understand what's going on that's why marxism is difficult well, well I, I, we can agree to disagree. No, um, George, we can't. We can't because there isn't any. No, there isn't. It's There's, this is just a matter I, of factual I, accuracy. I hold. I, I agree with with the manif with the Communist Manifesto that um, all of these kind of previous um, um, mystified forms of society have been replaced by one in which exploitation is naked and direct and it's not what he that's legal. not what is said in the communist manifesto yeah it is no it isn't well, it anyway, says look. it says that the cash nexus becomes the only medium of exchange and that all sentimental patriarchal relations are stripped away so it becomes yes, a, clear, a clear sent you know it becomes oriented around money that's not to say that exploitation is naked or the domination is direct there's a difference as well I think those form those veils being torn off. That is what I'm what I'm meaning by saying that the uh, the class relation is very clear. It's the it's the it's the it's well, the okay. Of, I mean, I, I, I'm not not agreeing well, with George here, but there is a point that Thomas makes in the I think the first page of this that capitalism is knowledge. That capitalism is unveiling. It's unsentimental, and in that regard. Uh, but, but that's just because it tears away all the kind of medieval mystical bullshit. But it doesn't mean that domination is then naked and direct. It's it's very much not. But maybe we should move on I mean, to the next yeah, question. Anyway, look, look, we we yeah, we no, should. But it is, we should. It is and, mediated. And our it's our mediated through commodity exchange. 
our listeners that's the point can make their own mind up as to who they think is correct and yes mail can... in people let let us know move on to the next question george yes so this we might have sort of already touched on this but tamash says there's a deep moral and psychological difficulty with marxism right which we which we might have sort of yeah, you might want to ex- maybe your best place to explain that what is your moral and psychological <laughs> difficulty with understanding some of this i I understand i mean i understand that it's difficult but this is a matter of accurate characterization of the argument i'm don't you know whether or not you agree with it is something else i'm not i'm not no i'm not characterizing what what i was saying previously i wasn't characterizing tamash's argument i was characterizing the the argument from the communist manifesto but yeah what's what's so what is this yeah what is this kind of or where does he locate this deep moral and psychological difficulty with Marxism, because he does, I think, put his finger on something important here. Well, that so much, so much of the kind of the energy for the struggle comes from indignation, that is uh, directed against injustice, oppression, and inequality, all of which may be objectionable, but ultimately are do not necessarily concern the central, from the Marxist viewpoint at least, the central problem of capitalist society, which is capital itself. So there's that, con- and it's true. I mean, it is a, con- you know, it is a, it is a genuine dilemma in Marxist politics is that the, um, you know, that kind of popular demotic um, feeling um, that would uh, motivate people to side with the oppressed or to wish to kind of alleviate the plight of the downtrodden can also lead you into the Rousseauian kind of stream of socialism as Tamash has described, rather than seeking to address the question of the domination of capital over labor, which isn't, um, you know, isn't, can't be so um, directly confronted or tackled. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is the tricky thing because everybody, I mean, yeah, I agree with Phil that Marxism doesn't provide the material or the intellectual resources to justify one's moral indignation or desire for justice. In fact, it argues that you should abandon ideas of justice because Marxism is kind of against justice. Um, and so that's tricky. That's tricky. And, it, and it's tricky also because there's no one who's born a scientific socialist, a bit born a Marxist. Everyone everyone becomes the socialist first. In fact, this is a kind of point that Zizek makes. You kind of believe before uh, before you actually, uh, you know, it's not, you're not intellectually convinced by Marxism. You're intellectually convinced by Marxism because you already believe in socialism in some form or another. And that point about, so you always have that element of moral indignation of, of uh, you know, appeals to justice and, and anger at injustice, domination, oppression, and so on. And Marxism then comes along and goes, well, actually, it's kind of more complicated than that. And, and that's difficult. But what's, what I find interesting, just to add to this, is that that's not only something that that um, point that Tamash makes is not about the moral and psychological difficulty of Marxism. It's not something necessary to be explained, but it's it's what he uses to explain the failure of Marxism and specifically the slippage from Marxism to egalitarianism or from Marxism to Rousseauanism and so on. And he gives three other reasons for that, which I thought might be interesting to discuss. Um, also, I'd like to discuss it because one of them I, I didn't fully understand. So if, I would so like to know us. if one of you did. So the first one, I think, is more is more clear. The, the first reason for the retreat from socialism towards egalitarianism is the psychological needs of remoralizing those at the bottom. I mean, this is my phrasing, but basically that the need, if you're fighting for these, the downtrodden, then you want to say the downtrodden are good people, not damaged subjects who are damaged by capitalism and as much part of capitalism as everyone else, right? You want to say, no, these people are good and separate from capitalism and that they should 
uh, be in charge, not um, not not that not that uh, you know they want to be abolished. That's difficult. Um, the second one, and this is the one that I don't quite understand, is is, an, is that he says that there's a worry about maintaining uh, equality in the face of the real the reality of uh, the random distribution of of human qualities and skills and so on. And so for that, you need a strong state to maintain equality. But the problem of a strong state is that it can further inequality that the people in charge of the state at the very least um, will, you know, will take, take things for themselves or pass it on to their mates. Um, and so this can only be combated through a sort of Kulturkampf, through a cultural struggle in favor or arguing for the nature, natural equality of humans. Right. And, and, uh, and that, so the, the fundamental uh, reason for, again, the failure of Marxism is that there's this slippage and this desire, this need for a sort of trans-historical argument about human malleability, as he puts it. Do you guys understand what, what exactly he's getting at there? Why is there this trans-historical need for an argument for about human malleability and, and therefore for cultural hegemony? It is convoluted, but I think, I mean, he's trying to, you know, discuss the dilemma that Marxism is, um, you know, I mean, in the sense at least that it seeks to put the proletariat in political control, it's leveling to that degree. But at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, it is a resolutely anti-egalitarian doctrine in the sense that it doesn't think the solution to inequality is equality. Um, and the all the various kind of, di you know, dilemmas that come from that, I'm not sure that he uh, articulates how those dilemmas unfold, particularly convincingly, and it's very abstract and without kind of historical examples to illustrate it. But I think that's essentially the tension he's getting at is that tension between um, that kind of dialectic between egalitarian and um, post-egalitarian, for want of a better phrase, politics in Marxism. So then maybe you need to make the argument that that people are people are malleable there's no such thing as human nature there's no fixed abstraction and present but but, but i think he's making the argument that the rousseauians say this the rousseauians tried to mm. make this argument so that's why i'm confused anyway for for listeners if, if you have any more insight into what actually he's getting at here um it's the second reason that he gives and it's on page 246 cool so um, just to, to kind of bring us back to this idea of this deep moral and psychological difficulty with Marxism, I think, yeah, I think it's it's that it starts from this, rec it has to start from this recognition that being a worker is the, you know, the worst condition that a human being can find themselves themselves in. And that, that the paradox of class is precisely that that, ex you know, exploited as a collective revolutionary agent is the way, is the only way to to kind of rid yourself of this of this condition um so yeah i mean and that's that that's quite a, it's not an easy thing to um to accept i don't i don't think there's a moral difficulty there though i mean that's just you know I don't that's think, the way it is i mean i don't think that's true it, i mean moral i don't think it's moral in the sense of uh you know like a problem for moral philosophy i think it's moral a moral problem in the sense that it makes um, you know, concrete kind of decisions for people who are torn between conflicting impulses, uh, conflicting ways of life, uh, the tension between what they might see might be kind of political necessity and um, their, you know, the kind of um, social context um, they find themselves in or the other kinds of uh, pressures to behave in particular ways might come from. So I think that's what it means by moral yeah. difficulty. 
Okay. Well, so we've we've arrived now at uh, the big the big question: What is the truth about class? So this is the title, obviously, of the um, of the essay, telling the truth about class in the you know telling the truth um, issue of the Socialist Register. But what is what is the truth about class? Who's who's going to speak truth? Who's going to speak their their own truth? N- not their own truth. That's not interesting. No one's interested. Okay, who's in going to speak truth. the truth? Speak just speak truth. Capital T, though. Well, I mean, I can't remember exactly what he what he concludes. I mean, and ultimately, it's kind of a bit immaterial about what the kind of clincher is. So why are you why are you here talking on the reading club if you don't remember what he actually says <laughs> about class? I remember what he says about class. I can I can Look, re- has, I can relay the whole notes. argument to you. Written, I can. I, I have notes. I just don't remember. I just I just don't remember where Thomas says. Okay, so all this stuff that I said, this specific bit, this is the truth about class. I, that's what I don't remember exactly. I can, I can, you know, I think it's the 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 point that we've been making that Marxists have just done mainly Rousseauian politics, that that uh, they've been responsible for capitalist modernization, but that now, 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 when we have true legal, cultural, and political equality, at least in the the most developed societies in the world, there are no more feudal remnants. Modernization has done its job. Now, what we have is pure capitalism. Now we have the true class conflict that that what was that is what was described in Capital. That like that that Marx was you know to, to arguably 150 years ahead of his time in that regard, or at least foresaw. Yeah, that's his conclusion, and it's a very so the I mean it's a very enticing and tantalizing one, but I think ultimately naive. Um, it would be nice to think. I mean, it's a it's a very kind of intriguing idea. Like I say, the idea that um, socialists have contributed through Rousseauianism, they've contributed to modernization. So and um, egalitarianism, which in turn is reinforced, in fact, capitalist, the logic of capitalist domination, which, as you and I were saying to George, we're explaining to George, Alex, is based obviously on relations of equality, that capitalist domination emerges in relations of legal equality, um, indirect domination, if you will. So and so direct domination is not. Ex- no, 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 we're not doing this again. No, we're not doing this again. We're not doing this again. Let Phil socialism. Rousseauian socialism has um, ended up by reinf- precisely by its egalitarian thrust, has ended up um, laying the ground for um, capitalism throughout the world. And it's a, you know, I think I'm sure it's an accurate account of the inadvertent outcomes of um, socialist struggles over the course of the 20th century. But I don't think that it means that we kind of now can see with clearer senses, partly because I think, and this is where I think his argument falls down, because the defeat of that Rousseauian vision was also the defeat, ultimately, uh, there, you know, of uh, Marxist politics as well, because the two are intertwined. Um, and Marxism was dependent on this Rousseauian vision in order to have any kind of meaningful, um, you know, any kind of meaningful, uh, concrete kind of constituency for this kind of, for its own politics. It emerged as a critique of the socialist and communist strands that developed out of the French Revolution. Um, but without those, without those um, social movements, without those um, radical politics without those various kind of anarchist and socialist and communist sects and parties and labor movements and societies and clubs and associations of all sorts, 
um, there is no basis for that politics and that those that kind of Rousseauian vision, the E.P. Thompson vision of working class life um, was has been upended. It and was it, shredded and it, in the course of neoliberalism. And so uh, this is where he's mistaken, I think. Um, the idea that casting off Rousseauian socialism would clear the way um, isn't, I don't think isn't I don't think he's being I don't think he's being optimistic. I think he's drawing attention to a deep paradox and to a historical irony that the pure capitalism that we have today means Marxism in some ways, yes, is more relevant than ever because we've got rid of all these old vestiges which sustained Rousseauian politics. Um, just as that old cultural identity, which Marxism was a substrate that Marxism subsisted on, has disappeared. So in some ways, to put it maybe in, in too reductive terms, the objective conditions are better than ever, but the subjective conditions have never been worse. Um, so, And I think that's correct. Yeah, in, and so actually, one of the things which, which reading this made me think of was the distinction which I think I've made on the podcast at least once before. Um, which is Pete Ramsey's distinction in the Brexit context between treating working class as object or subject of politics. And, you know, this is to a certain extent, it doesn't exactly fit, but the Rousseauian ideal is treating people as objects of, of politics, that there's some sort of, you know, giving giving resources, giving like good things. I'm to, not sure that's right. Of, yeah, I don't and think they, it exactly no, fits. They're age, no, because they're agents yeah. of an egalitarian, they're like, they are very much agents. They're subjects who yeah, overthrow feudal order. And, yeah. It's a Jacobin model, right? I mean, it is, it, it is, it does have a... It is a politics of agency. It's the it French isn't... Revolution, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Well, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. If, if anything, if anything, if it... anything, Brexit, Brexit is very much a Rousseauian politics, right? I mean, even even uh, you guys, yeah. right? It's a Rousseauian politics because it's a it's an attempt to modernize Britain to a... to get rid of feudal. Res well, maybe not it's in the case of the EU of a feudal vestige, but it, but in feudal. sense, but in sense of raising raising the people to the status of the nation, right? And through the process of Parliament and and the democracy that exists in Parliament, and I think that's fine. I'm I'm in favor of that, but I think it I think it would be cast as a sort of Rousseauian politics according to Tamash's terms. Well, I disagree, but anyway, the point that I was going to make before I was rudely. Uh, derailed is that there's there is clearly a contradiction within this this idea of of um, and this is what he says the truth about class the truth about class is that the proletariat historically had two contradictory objectives one to preserve itself and secondly to defeat its antagonist and to abolish itself as a class and I think that yeah, I think that's true that's, that is and that's that's an important that's an important thing to just to just say that that's that there's no real way way around that. Um, and, and it is it is the difficulty of Marxist politics. There is no, like you say, there is no avoiding that central contradiction, um, and the difficulty of managing it in the failure of Marxist political parties to to um, try and you know to resolve that contradiction. They failed to do that exactly that. Yeah, and so that's 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 where we are. Um, that's why we are where we are now. But yeah, I think I think the point that you made, Alex, is a good one. That the the and this is this is sort of his concluding note that the last flowers have fallen off the chain and that there's there's really um i think that you know this it's kind of a consistent theme of, of various things that you know that we're now free of delusions i think it's i don't know if i kind of buy it though i wish but i wish i could i mean that's the point i think you know we're we're not free of delusions and um partly i think 
you know i mean there are more in some respects uh you know there's the delusion of the apocalypse so that the only way to motivate radical politics is by rescuing humanity rather than emancipating humanity that's or even a... or even with extinction rebellion act because it's too late so it's not even it's a yeah, apoca- even reverse apocalypticism in a way yeah, yeah. yeah. that's just that's, I mean, that's just nonsense though i don't think that should be given even the time of day but even I think worse but you know so i mean there is i mean i think there are pl- there's plenty of delusion um and indeed you know i mean there's plenty of uh, marxist delusion as well i mean you know think of um fully automated luxury communism as um as uh, one kind of expression of the marxist politics of our day and the delusion associated with with that outlook so i don't the idea that you it's a lot like it's a t- it's a lovely enticing idea but i and but i'm i can't bring I, I, myself I, to believe I, in it and i would to, to kind of grab a little branch from from gramsci here like the the kind of the, the famous citation that the challenge of modernity is to live life without illusions without becoming disillusioned in fact it's our disillusionment and part of which is um fomented by atomization which is to say the breakdown precisely of those working class communities and that whole substrate and whole life world of of working class politics that existed before, the breakdown of that has led to atomization, which has led to mistrust and disillusionment. And in in one way, that could itself be the the greatest uh, illusion or um, delusion that we have today in some sense that, that we're all too separated from one another, right? And that we don't believe that political change is even possible. And that itself is a, is another is perhaps another one of these delusions. The great, the greatest delusion is the thing that we have no delusions left to to rid ourselves of. Um, Possibly, but yeah. No, I th- uh, any any final any final thoughts on on this? I think it's a it's a very it's a very dense. Um, you can just see by the fact that it has like seventy footnotes, and the footnotes gone for like four pages or five pages or whatever is very dense and, and thought provoking but and any final anything final to, to chuck in there i think it's been a it's been a rich and uh, rewarding discussion this is just a little thing we're uh, inserting here because we forgot to deal with one question that we got uh that we'd like to deal with which was put uh, to us by listener luke thibault Uh, The question is as follows. Many socialists take it as a point of pride that our tradition includes heroic revolutionaries who took down monarchies. But uh, GMT criticizes it as false consciousness at the service of modernizing capitalism. Is this a kind of stagism? GMT is only suggestive in the epilogue, but his argument leads us to believe that the task of abolishing class gains clarity if in fact we have finished the fights fights, uh, against caste and inequality. Uh, and in this, uh, GMT also seems optimistic, contrary to the recent political climate, which seems to still be a battle for recognition, to invoke anxieties of caste and fascism everywhere, things to hate, to storm, to chase away. The ending also hints at the renewed importance of the state as a terrain of struggle and of mode of class representation. So let's uh, let's try to deal with this. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this point... Uh, builds on something that we touched upon on in our discussion, which is that Tamash's attempt to kind of, um, he overly forces the separation between what he calls Rousseauian socialism and um, a Marxian socialism, and that they're more into, he's willing to admit, at least in, in that piece, 
Um, and that I would, I mean, I think I'd agree that, uh, you know, it is a kind of stagism that he's forced, or at least the implication of his argument is to force himself into a kind of stagism, which doesn't seem to me to be right. Um, you know, that it is in fact, the you know, there is no way to talk about, meaningfully to talk about uh, social upheaval and struggle um, without acknowledging its great accomplishments that go beyond just laying, you know, simply laying the ground for... Um, for capitalism. I mean, I suppose the real upshot is that the redemption for those achievements only really comes in the aftermath of capitalism, but that hasn't been achieved yet. Yeah, though, I mean, isn't he saying that, you know, isn't, I mean, Tamash saying that, you know, basically when revolutionaries were fighting to take down bits of the old regime, they should have been already taking down class. They should have been targeting class. Um or does he, or alternatively, I guess you could say that it, it was a conundrum that they were trying, as he says, you know, to do proletarian and bourgeois revolution at the same time. I guess he's just being realist about the fact that now, where we are today, is the, 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 the tasks of bourgeois revolution in all developed societies, at least. And he's clear to emphasize that only in develops in the most advanced societies, because in many parts of the periphery and semi periphery, there are still many kind of what would be called, I guess, quasi feudal remnants or. Uh, quasi-feudal recreations, which are still need to be taken down. But at least in somewhere like Britain or France or the US, these things aren't present and that therefore, you know, there's no option but to fight class, uh, to, to fight for the for the abolition of class. I'm, I mean, as I said, I mean, I'm skeptical of Tamash's optimism. It seems to me it's too, you know, it's uh, very alluring, but that it's ultimately unsustainable. Um, I don't know if it's, so, opt I don't know what, what, why do you think it's optimism? I'm curious because I didn't read it as optimistic. I just, it, more the kind of the, the, the well, very limited optimism that maybe, being clear sighted allows you. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose optimistic is perhaps uh, mischaracterization, but he, the claim that it's easier to be clear sighted now seems to me to be naive, alluring in terms of the logic of the argument. And given, you know, how beautifully the arguments presented, it's alluring, but naive. Yeah. Perhaps because of the very specific forms of mystification of capitalism that uh, effectively the advance of commodity fetishism and reification means that it's more difficult perhaps than ever to, to see clearly. I don't know. I don't know about that, but I mean, I, th I think the result of the legacy of defeats of the last, um, you know, the last century isn't easily dispensed with. So it's not simply been clearing the way for, a, you know, like a more crystalline insight into contemporary uh, social relations, but instead, as um, you know, the night, the tradition of the dead generations weighs like a nightmare upon the mind of the living. That's still true. That's right, but I mean, as we have much limited historical memory, is the weight of you know all the failures of the twentieth century and the twentieth century left? Does that, as we become further and further removed from that, to a certain extent, it's not been you know kind of dialectically dialectically overcome, but to a certain extent, it no longer weighs on us because we've forgotten about it. Although, having said that, I think that a lot of things no, are, it, a lot of the problems today are about trying to weigh. It weighs on us because we've not resolved them. It's not because we can, you know, we necessarily remember them, but because we've not resolved them and there's a difference. And I mean, you know, I mean, we discussed this in a reading club, in an earlier reading club on Mike McNair's account of how intersectionalism can be rooted in the Stalinism of the interwar period. Um, and so, you know, in that, along the lines of that model, I don't think that we've simply, the fact that we're kind of historically amnesiac doesn't get us away from mm -hmm. the legacy of those earlier, of those earlier defeats. In fact, I mean, it's built upon them. 
the fact that they're not seen as defeats, but are rather seen often as accomplishments, as kind of stepping stones to a greater emancipation for various oppressed identities is part of the problem, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we're trying to wedge 21st century problems into 20th century solutions very often. And uh, that is a big part of the problem on the left today. Okay, uh, we'll leave that there. Thank you for your question. Cool. Well, let's tell everybody what's coming up next. We've got more. Oh, we can actually t- we can actually continue our discussion about um, about exploitation quite directly, and we will see who has textual support. Yeah, I'm going to exploit your ass until you admit that you were wrong. Uh, next up on the Reading Club, we are discussing Marshall Berman's "All That Is Solid Melts Into Air." Uh, we are reading the George. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're reading the introduction from that, or chapter one from that introduction. The introduction from that and discussing it, uh, but it's a fantastic book and it's worth reading the entirety of it. But yeah, we'll just be discussing the introduction because it's a rather long book. Uh, That will be at the end of uh, November. And so uh, we look forward to doing that. We look forward to getting any questions and comments that you might have from that. And, you know, tell your friends. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.